Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church Podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Hi, everyone. My name is Greg. Uh, I'm one of the elders in the city location. I do get the opportunity to share the scriptures with you uh, a couple times a year. And I guess uh, Brian's out of town. So, uh, you know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Um, but in all seriousness, it is a privilege and a pleasure uh, to do this. Um, but I'm, I'm going to dive right in. I don't want to waste too much time here. Uh, have you ever <clears throat> been invited to a party that you really didn't feel like you like belonged there. Maybe uh, you won some tickets to a fancy event or uh, got like VIP backstage access to a, to a concert or something and you showed up and you're just like, I can't believe I got in. Um, I had this experience um, back when I was in medical school. I did a research year with the National Institutes of Health through the NIH, and I received a letter in the mail inviting me to the International Achievement Summit. Now I looked at this thing, I said, this sounds kind of gimmicky. I don't know if this is spam or a scam, and I threw it in the corner. And a few weeks later, I got a second letter that said, hey, we haven't heard from you. Uh, we need to make arrangements for this event. So I said, oh, okay, well, maybe this is something I should look into. Quick search of Google had my jaw dropping, and I said, I, I got to get in on this. So imagine four days, all expenses paid trip to the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and an opportunity to hobnob and rub shoulders with not just leaders in our nation, but leaders, movers and shakers of the international community. During this trip, I heard speeches from Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I uh, even heard from the future president of the United States, POTUS himself, Barack Obama. Francis Collins and Tony Fauci of the NIH told us, taught, uh, spoke to us about uh, pushing the limits of medical knowledge and expanding our scientific interests. We heard from Peyton Manning about breaking passing records. And from Nobel laureate Bishop Desmond Tutu about breaking down apartheid. I even had a beer with General Wesley Clark, former Supreme Commander of NATO forces. And we talked about how the Iraq war was similar or dissimilar to the Vietnam War, conflicts he had been involved with in both. It was an incredible weekend. It left me and my other student delegates feeling energized and excited about our future and what our opportunities might lie ahead of us. Uh, and frankly, we were all just starstruck. As I flew home on the plane, I thought to myself, man, what if I had never given that invitation a second look? The idea that I would have thought or decided that I had more important things to do at home than to attend this event may sound ridiculous. And that's true. It is ridiculous. But Jesus actually presents to us an even more outlandish idea. He says, the kingdom of God is like a king who threw a banquet and people who received an invitation chose not to come. The king of the universe has a party, but you're too busy to show up. 
As we consider this parable together, I, I hope that we can discover the riches of this kingdom, the generosity of this king, and not only that, but become those who would receive the invitation, accept the invitation, and even extend the invitation to others. Now, we're looking at Matthew's gospel, like a, 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 a biography of Jesus' life. Matthew and Jesus were both Jewish men of a certain age from the first century. They shared language, they shared culture, they probably shared a number of life experiences. Matthew's gospel is considered to be like the Jewish gospel, written to, by Jews, for Jews. And in so doing, Matthew sometimes leaves out explanatory details and things that modern Westerners like you and I would find helpful. So imagine this, you know, we're all here in St. Louis. If I come to you and I start to talk to you about how Ozzy was the greatest, amazing Hall of Famer, you're probably going to think I'm talking about Ozzy Smith of the Cardinals, not Ozzy Osbourne of Black Sabbath. Why? Because we're in St. Louis. They're both Ozzies and they're both in the Hall of Fame. But you know where I'm coming from because we are St. Louisans. In the same way, if a Jewish rabbi stands up and says, the kingdom of God is like a wedding feast, the average Jewish person at the time would have immediately thought of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 25. It's part of their cultural heritage. And so let me read it to you. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will, he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, Jesus' introduction to this parable would immediately call to mind this scene referred to as the Messianic banquet. Why? Because the Jewish people believed that on this mountain where Jerusalem was, the Messiah would appear and usher in an unprecedented age of God's blessing. So again, Jesus opens this parable. But as Jesus begins the parable, the invitations have already gone out. The RSVPs have already come in and the guests are waiting to be called to the banquet. So let's see what Jesus says about this banquet. He says, the king, he sent his servants to summon those who had been invited to the wedding, but they were not willing to come. So again, a second time, he sends out servants with these instructions. Say to those who have been invited, look, I have the meal ready. The food is hot. Come on in. It's getting cold. Come to the wedding feast. Now, I, I appreciate the way this starts out because if you know me, uh, I have this little problem. I'm chronically late to everything. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, would, I would be this person. I would need a reminder. 
Okay, so the gracious king gives these guests a second chance. They, they should have been waiting at the ready. Oh, we know the banquet's today. We know it's going to be around dinner time. Let's put everything away and be ready for this herald, ready for this invitation, ready for the call. But it says that they were busy going about their own business. Now, the guests, after they received this second reminder, should have really been ready. They should have kind of been embarrassed that it took two reminders. You know, in my house, when dinner is ready, I generally call the kids. I tell everyone, hey, food's hot. Let's go. It's time to eat. My experience is just like the king. Nobody comes. And usually I give a second reminder, but I'm not like the king. My second reminder is not gracious. It's not patient. It's usually, hey, hey, get down here. There's a little impatience. There's a little annoyance. You know, usually it comes along with some threat about going to bed without eating or being hungry, missing out on the banquet. No, this king is very gracious. And in fact, in a time when kings were often worshipped like gods, the idea that the king would have to make a second appeal or even a third request is unheard of. Now, we also see that the guests, it says, they took no notice and they went off each to his own business, his farm, his business, whatever he's doing. And then there's another group of guests who actually grab these servants, treat them shamefully and kill them. What is this about? This, this is a turn of events in the parable that nobody would have expected. They took no notice. Say that with me. Took no notice. No notice. Who doesn't notice the king's herald in the streets? Who doesn't notice a second group? Trumpets and fanfare. The party is starting, people. Nah, this is like, this is a nice way to say they refused to come. They ignored the king. This is an insult to the king. And in fact, if none of the guests show up, I mean, if every single person that you invited has an excuse, you're going to start thinking something's up. This isn't just a bad time, a busy weekend. This is a rebellion. This is collusion. This is the noble class saying, you know what, we don't, we don't have any confidence in this king. We're not going to support this king. En masse, all together, we're going to show him that we want him out. You know what that's called? That's a rebellion. And the violence that comes to the king's servants following this mass refusal reveals the true purpose. They've declared war against the king. An attack on the king's servant is an attack on the king. So the king does what kings do. He sends his soldiers, and the soldiers do what soldiers do. And they put down this rebellion. But look at the graciousness of this king. As the soldiers go one way, servants go another. It says, The king was furious and sent out his troops and destroyed those murderers and set fire to their city. And then the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So go out to the main roads. Go out to the street corners and invite as many as you can find. Now, there's a second group of guests who are invited in. They don't look a lot like the first group of guests. You know, I don't care what time you live in. I don't care what town you're from. The wealthy and the influential, you know, they don't hang out on street corners. You don't find them in the main roads. 
The guy on the street corner is looking for work. The lady on the street corner is waiting for the metro. People on street corners are begging for change. You know what they're not doing? They're not waiting for an invitation to the king's party. These servants, they're not headed to Plaza Frontenac, and t- Town and Country, and Clayton, and Ledoux. They're going out to find working folk, everyday, average Joes. You know, those servants, they went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they could find. It says that they brought them in, both good and bad. That's interesting. And that the wedding hall was filled with guests. Okay, so now we have a party. Not the party that the king had planned, or, but it's cool. This king, you know, he's, he loves to party. He's going to have his party. He, he's not going to let anything stop him. He must love this celebration. He must love this son whom he's celebrating. He takes his anger and he channels it into grace. And he makes a way for all to come in, anyone who is willing. It goes on. It says, when the king came in to look at the guests, and now he's mingling, he's walking amongst them, shaking hands, kissing babies, doing what kings do. He saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I was a little confused by this. I thought, I mean, he just invited all the people from the street corner, the byways and the highways. He's bringing them all in. And this guy comes in and he's just wearing what he came in with. Like, it's a short notice invitation. I don't understand why is he tossed out. As I dug into this, though, I found that commentators had, had discovered a historical precedent that back in those days, most people would only really own one or two items of articles of clothing. You wear a tunic, probably shoulders, mid-thigh, maybe a little longer. It would have been out of, made out of very durable material, burlap or canvas or something like that. And, you know, not very appealing, tan, brown, whatever. <clears throat> because everybody worked with their hands back then. At least most people did. Not everybody had a desk job. Most people had to farm, they had to raise cattle, uh, they had a trade, and so they would have clothing to match the trade. But if you threw a big fancy party like this and you were royalty, you provide your guests with clothing. You knew that the people you invited didn't have the time or the money to go out and buy fine clothing, and so you might have a wardrobe of white linen, simple but clean, effective. And so when the guests come in, they can come with the one article or two, you know, they have this. I mean, they might show up and say, look, I mean, this is my good tunic, man. This is the best I got. But then you would give them white linen so that they could be dressed appropriately for your party. Now, this served a couple of purposes, right? You, the host, you look generous. Kudos to you. Your guests are dressed appropriately. Excellent. And then when you, the host, show up with, a purple sash or, you know, a red robe. You stand out. Everybody has a good time. But for this guest who would have received or been offered appropriate wedding garments, banquet clothing, 
to say, no, 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 I'm cool. I'm going to wear what I got. This would be the equivalent of showing up at a black tie affair wearing your Carhartt pants, you know, some paint on the side, maybe your, your greasy dickies because you just came from the, the shop. This would have been not just inappropriate, but actually insulting. I, I don't need your handout. You know, I, I'm a hardworking guy. I, you know, I got here on my own. I, I don't need all this fancy stuff. Well, friend, it's my party. And I did offer you this gracious gift. Why did you refuse it? Now, there's another way to think about this. Maybe this guy is actually snuck in from the back door. Maybe he's one of those original guests who, when he saw the city burning, thought differently and tried to sneak back in. But what did it tell us about that first group of guests? It says they were not worthy. So in either way, in either case, this guest is excluded. And when they ask him, how did you get in? He really has no excuse. So maybe he knew that he had done something wrong. He was caught. Okay, so that's our flyby. That we've kind of considered this parable, took a cursory look at all that's happening. It's going to be valuable for us to go back, dig in a little deeper, right? Parables are stories. They're like little dramas. And Jesus, the master teacher, is layering into this all kinds of richness that we want to try to draw out of this text. So I think it's helpful for us to go and look at each of the, the main characters, each of the roles, kind of put ourselves in their shoes and see things from that perspective. Now, the first character in this drama is the king. And with Jesus' introduction, the kingdom of God can be likened to a king who throws a wedding banquet. We know that the king is God. You and I, we're, we won't be kings. We're not going to learn how to be kings, but we can learn about the king. So let's... Look at this. What kind of king rules this kingdom? Or asked a different way, does your conception of God match Jesus' conception of this king? Or is Jesus going to show us something unexpected, something surprising that we didn't look for? The first attribute of this king that jumps out to me is that he likes to party. He wants to celebrate. He's got his mind set and his heart made up that his son deserves to be lauded, to be celebrated, to be enjoyed, and he's going to put on this party. So I ask you this question. When you think of the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, do you think of a happy God, a celebrating God, or an angry God, a judgmental God? When you screw up, and frankly, we all screw up, do you consider that you're seeking forgiveness from a God who gives rebels second chances? When you pray, do you approach a generous God who has flung open the gates of the palace to let all in, both the good and the bad? When you worship, do you approach a God who has made himself accessible to the good and the bad? When you think of God, when you think of being accepted by God, does your God expect you to clean yourself up and to provide your own wedding garments? Or do you serve a God who gives you everything you need? You see, Jesus' God does all these things. He's extravagant. He's lavish. He's surprising. The king does not punish the original guests when they refuse, when they go about their own business, when they 
pay him no mind. No, he gives them a second chance. He is a God of second chances. When the king is denied the party that he originally planned and prepared, he refuses to miss out on a chance to celebrate. I mean, the food is already ready, might as well party. And instead of abandoning his plans, like I would, I would have shut it all down. I would have gone up in my tower. I'd have had a pity party instead of a feasting party. No, on the contrary, he delights. He brings in anyone who is willing to celebrate his son. And he mingles with them. He's not ashamed to mingle with the lowly. He delights to be with his people. His first impulse is embrace, not judgment. Finally, this king, out of his own resources, provides for these guests. People who don't have the time or the resources to clean themselves up or to make themselves presentable. He gives them exactly what they need so that they can enter in and partake of his generosity. The feast that he has laid out for them. <clears throat> Notice, both the good and the bad are present, but only one guest is excluded. You know what that means? There's a lot of bad people in this group. Does that match your conception of the church? Full of the good and the bad, all walks of life, a complete cross-section, everyone is invited, everyone is embraced. And in fact, the king has covered up their badness with his generosity at great cost to himself. Well, okay, now that we've considered the king, we turn to the guests. It's clear from Luke's account of the same parable that these first guests represent the religious elite of Jesus' day. Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers, all these professional Jews, if you will, that these are people who, because of their ethnic heritage, we're children of Abraham because of their moral piety. Look how we observe the law. Because of their religious devotion, they felt that they were acceptable to God. However, Jesus is warning them that they have prioritized their business, not the king's business. That they would rather argue and fuss about details of law-keeping than to celebrate the generosity of their God. And that they are at risk of missing out on Isaiah's messianic banquet. Not only that, but prophetically, Jesus speaks that the violence that the Pharisees start to plot against him and eventually carry out against God's servant will bring on them judgment. The Pharisees, they believed that they were good and decent people, morally acceptable but the scripture says here, the wedding feast is ready. Those who were invited are not worthy. What made them not worthy? It wasn't their wealth, their status, their influence, or their morality that determined their worthiness. No, it was their response to God's invitation. The response alone is, determines whether they are acceptable their inability to recognize the value of the king and his generosity, their unwillingness to prioritize the king's business above their own business. Simply accepting the king's kindness would have been enough. But of course, that would require us to acknowledge 
that we need to put aside our agenda, that we need to plan to be ready to drop what we're doing and go and be about the king's business. So I ask you again, which kind of guest are you? Have you joyfully accepted the king's invitation? You're here this morning. Kudos to you. That's a good start. But that's not enough. Have you made the king's business a priority in your life? Or are you even at this very moment mentally giving your attention to your business? Are you thinking about your lunch plans? Planning out your grocery lists? Are you preparing for your work week? Are you swiping on your app? Do you struggle to leave your own business so that you can attend to God's business? Put another way, have you resisted this benevolent king? You know, it's easy to villainize the Pharisees and to say, you know, I've never been violent against God or, or attacked anyone. But the reality is that there's two ways to rebel. Some rebelled by ignoring the king's invitation, others with open violence. You see, rebellion generally starts behind closed doors in the secret places. Rebellion is a state of the heart. So at this moment, I challenge you, everyone in this room, every elder, every group leader, every church member, every visitor, take a good, hard look in the spiritual mirror and ask yourself, in fact, ask God, God, where have I resisted you? What parts of my life are closed off to your kingship? Where am I holding on to and valuing my business above your business? Are you attending church this morning because your spouse dragged you here? Or your parents expect you to show up? Do you skip out on community groups because you don't really want those religious people messing up your life? Are you putting in extra hours on the job to build the life of your dreams? Or waiting for that relationship that would make you whole? Too busy with your job, your club, your hobbies, your relationships to be bothered with the king's business. All of these attitudes promote our priorities while simultaneously undermining the king's priorities. But the good news is that today you can receive this invitation. You have a chance to enter into the king's business and the king's business is described as a party. Does that describe your Christian devotion? Celebration. Remember how I, Isaiah describes this feast. Wine and marrow, full of marrow. You know, when I make ribs for dinner at home, my kids do come to dinner. <laughs> and at the end of the meal, they don't fight over the last bit of rib meat. They fight over the bones. They want to gnaw on the bones and suck the marrow. That's what Isaiah is offering us, the finest things of life, this fantastic feast beyond what we could even imagine. Finally, the excluded guest, you know, even though this guest had received this gracious invitation from the king and though they had willingly accepted, he chose to attend the party in his own street clothes. Despite the fact that the king had provided for him, free of charge, a proper tuxedo to wear, 
this guest declines the king's gift. Now, the key to understanding this comes again from Isaiah's prophetic writings, a connection that, again, Jesus' audience would have easily made. Isaiah chapter 61 reads this way. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself, like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Isaiah, using the same language of wedding clothing, presents God as the decisive agent, the initiator, the one who would save his faithful people, who would provide for them garments appropriate for this wedding feast. Now, Paul the Apostle picks up this same imagery in multiple places throughout the New Testament. He writes about putting on. So in Romans 13, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. In Galatians 3, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then in Philippians 3, he says this. He says that we would be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, from moral activity or righteous living, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. Now, it may be helpful to think about this term righteousness for a moment. In the Old Testament, whenever God displays his righteousness, it's always connected to his saving action. He bears his right arm. He saves his people. He has a miraculous display of his goodness and his power, but also his grace because he chose them. He says, it's not because of you that I chose you, but I chose you in my joy to be my people, and now I'm saving. And so... To be righteous or to live righteously flows out of, in the Jewish mind, the fact that God has displayed himself and shown himself to be righteous. The righteousness starts with God's saving act, and the righteous living is a response to, not a way to earn in God's saving act. So while we think of a righteous person as someone who does a lot of good things, in their mind, the righteous person has a person who has a position of favor with God. And so this righteousness that comes from outside of ourselves, Jesus is drawing that out. In fact, in Matthew 5, Jesus teaches his disciples, he says, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, right, the professional religious people, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this would have left his disciples feeling very overwhelmed. How could we ever be more righteous than those who know the law backwards and forwards and spend all of their time observing it? Well, because you need a righteousness that exceeds what people can generate for themselves. The Pharisees come to God with the righteousness that a human can make, but the righteousness that God accepts is the righteousness like Isaiah talks about, garments of salvation, a righteousness that the king offers. There is a heavenly tailor who can befit you for the wedding feast. And only he can give you a robe of righteousness. Only he can clothe you in garments for this salvation. For this salvation. 
Because the scripture says there is no one who is righteous, not one. We are all dependent on God's gracious gift. We are all dependent on God's garments of salvation to be acceptable at the feast. The key to access to God is not what you can do, but what he has done for you. But first, you have to admit that you need them. If you accept his invitation and show up in your own clothes, you will be excluded. So what clothes are you wearing today? I don't mean what, what name is on your label. Calvin Klein, Ferragamo, Louis Vuitton, Gucci. No, I want to know, are you dressed in the righteousness that gets you access to God's feast? The, the righteousness that does not come from the law, but through faith in Christ. And if we go back and think about how Isaiah describes this feast, what does he say? Not only is there rich food and wine, but death will be swallowed up. In vi- Amazing. Where else do we see death swallowed up in the scriptures? Paul writes that death would be swallowed up in victory, in Christ's resurrection. And so Christ, the Messiah who initiates and explains this feast, gives us an invitation. And the reason that we can come in is because of this king and his generosity and because of this son who will make it possible, who will give us of his own righteousness, clothing to wear. And in Revelation, it says that those who stand before the lamb are clothed in white linen. So I ask you today, have you received this invitation? Have you RSVP'd yes? Have you made the king's business your priority? Are you ready to drop things at the drop of a hat and join this wedding celebration? Are you coming and receiving the righteousness and the clothing that he offers Death will be swallowed up and the feast will be great. The celebration is on. And today you can enter into the banquet hall. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus ends this parable with the statement that many are called, but few are chosen. The servants went out and many were called in, but not everyone was chosen to stay. Today, you can be certain that you will be chosen by receiving his righteousness and being clothed in his garments of salvation. Lord, many things in this parable are surprising and shocking. Many things cut across the grain of what we might have thought about you, but I pray that this morning you would soften our hearts, that we would receive by the authority of Jesus, the reality of this King and of his banquet and of his path to access. Today, I pray that we would receive you as king. We would make your business our business and that we, that you would by faith clothe us in your righteousness.